I invite you to turn your Bibles, if you would, with me this morning to Matthew chapter 24 as we continue our study of what is often referred to as the Olivet Discourse, as Jesus on the eve before the day in which he will partake of the Passover meal with his disciples in which he will be betrayed. After he has been rejected in Jerusalem, he sits on the Mount of Olives and answers a very important question his disciples asked of him, asking him, when will the end of signs, what are the signs of the end of the age and of his coming? And we've been giving our attention to Matthew chapter 24, and we'll continue on the Olivet Discourse into chapter 25 in a few weeks. This morning, we want to examine together verses 32 through 51. I'll give attention to the reading of God's word. Jesus said, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and it puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see these, all these things, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that hour and day, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will." Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the 
opportunity to read and to study the words of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, this morning. And in these days, we pray that you would impress deeply upon our hearts the teaching of our Lord, and that in this generation in which we are so consumed with here and now, that you would transform us, each one here, our church, that we would be characterized more and more as those who look anxiously for the return of your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, we have spent some time examining together the first portion of Matthew chapter 24. And again, if you look back at the beginning of the chapter, the disciples came to Jesus. And after he had told them that the temple would be destroyed, they said to him in verse 3, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And we've noted that Jesus has not said to his disciples, oh guys, don't worry about it. That's not all that important. Um, It'll all work out. That is not what Jesus says. And that nonetheless is the spirit of much of evangelicalism in our day The word on the street is that we shouldn't get too caught up in thinking about what the Bible has to say about the last days and about end times. After all, who can agree and and so forth and so on. And I have tried to gently encourage you that we should take what our Lord is saying at face value. We should listen, especially given that his answer here to his disciples' question is the longest recorded answer to a question by Jesus in the Gospels. He does not think that this is a matter of of passing importance. He is trying to deeply impress these things upon the hearts and minds of his disciples. Look with me at verse 25. This was striking. We examined this last week, but I didn't really emphasize this, but Jesus is teaching about what will occur in the last days. And notice he takes a moment to say, behold, I have told you in advance. I mean, he's drilling down and he's essentially saying, let this sink into your ears. Don't lose sight of this. I have told you. You'll not be able to say, wow, you didn't tell us it was going to be like this. He is telling us what will unfold. And we know that these things were not merely for the disciples in that generation. Because up in verse 15, the Holy Spirit, who worked in Matthew to write down this gospel, put in this little note, let the reader understand. So while Jesus is there on the Mount of Olives and he's looking into the eyes of his disciples, remember that those disciples are his apostles. They are the ones who will be the foundation of his church. And he has just said to them in Matthew chapter 19 that they will one day rule over the restored tribes of Israel. So he is speaking to his men who are not merely his disciples as you and I are, but these men are the key men, minus Judas who will betray Jesus, who will be leaders in his church foundational apostles, 
and who will one day have a significant role in restored Israel and Judah. So Jesus is looking into their eyes. He knows that the words he is saying to them will be recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. He knows that. And he knows that one day his disciples, you and I, will be reading these words. And he is speaking to them, he is speaking to us, and he is speaking particularly to that generation that will live in that period of time called the tribulation. The tribulation, Jesus calls it the tribulation, and he calls it, in fact, the great tribulation, verse 21. As I've said, that did not start that kind of terminology just last century That is not the terminology of prophecy quacks who like to read the newspaper and speculate. This tribulation, this unprecedented time, Jesus calls it, verse 21, that will not occur since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will, is a time that Jesus refers to as the tribulation. And we spent time, we're not going to take time this morning, looking at the Old Testament context Jesus is referring to Daniel, the prophecies given through Daniel of one seven-year period remaining. Again, that idea of seven-year periods of time is not the purview of somebody who came up with some kind of timetable. It was even given in the law by God through Moses to Israel We saw that they were to live not only by seven days, the seventh day being the Sabbath, but they were to mark seven years. And on the seventh year, it was to be a sabbatical. So we've worked through this together, and it is a challenging portion of Scripture, but it is not so challenging that we throw up our hands and say, well, we don't really know what Jesus was saying. It was just kind of saying that there's going to be a lot of difficulty go on before he comes. We don't want to do that. We don't want to infer that our Lord is somehow so unclear. He's very clear. And what we've seen is what Jesus teaches and tells us is in full keeping with what has been prophesied before. That shouldn't surprise us. He is the Messiah of Israel. He is the ultimate prophet And God is not divided. God is not confused. God doesn't do what I do. And you know what I tend to do with my projects around the house? Inevitably, I think, well, okay, I'll do this. And I think that's a good idea. And I get into it and I realize, wow, that's a really bad idea. What kind of idiot would come up with that idea to put his wood there? So let's move this wood pile again. Let's put it over here. I tend to have plan A and plan B and then C. And my family just looks on and kind of just shakes their head. You know, God's not like that. He doesn't have plan A and plan B and plan C. He has had plan A from eternity past, and it is unfolding exactly as he declared through his prophets of old and through his son. So we have learned of this future seven-year tribulation, this time of unprecedented judgment on this earth and upon Israel in particular, So that in the last days, as Paul says in Romans 9, 10, and 11, that God will bring about a salvation of a remnant of Israel. And so all Israel will be saved. God's not done with Israel. Even though most of Israel has rejected him, 
Israel's rejection of her Messiah has resulted in the gospel going out to the Gentiles. The church is being built, but all of God's covenant promises to his people, Jew and Gentile, will be fulfilled. And immediately, Jesus says in verse 29, after that tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. We saw this last Lord's Day. And the sign, verse 30, of the Son of Man will appear and we'll see, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. So the Lord will return, touchdown on this earth sometime after, immediately after the tribulation. It will not be so immediately, though, that you can, some, somebody's going to be like, you know, marking a clock, okay, seven years, you know, so many hours and so many seconds. The end of the tribulation, if you have been listening, to, you've learned what Jesus has said, if you're living at that time, and I, I don't believe any of us will be, I do believe and our church teaches that the church will be raptured or we will be removed, we will meet Jesus in the clouds to be with him. That's a sermon for another day. And I know that godly, Christ-loving people differ on the timing of the rapture and uh, we all believe, unless you deny 1 Thessalonians 4, that we will be caught up, the rapture, we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the clouds. It's just a matter of when will we come back down with him. And um, we'll, we'll take some time, another time, about that. But we want to focus on what the Lord is talking about here. And he is saying that even those who go through the tribulation in that future day, there will be many Jews who come to faith in Christ as the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah. There will be many Gentiles during the tribulation who see these unprecedented troubles and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. And to those who will live during those terrible days, that time of unprecedented trial, Christ in his mercy and kindness is giving them words to sustain them. It's just like our Lord. He is so kind and so gracious. And he is telling them primarily that when you've gone through that period of time, you must be looking for the return of your Lord. Be active, be ready. And that is the emphasis of this passage. But of course, Jesus' words here about being ready for his coming do not, are not reserved, rather, merely for that generation that will be in the tribulation the tenor, the spirit of this entire passage is for Christ's disciples that he was talking to, for us here, this, we who are here this morning, and for Christians in every generation. We are to be marked by looking for the return of our Lord. Paul, to, in his letter to Titus in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, he says there, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That is for every Christian, in every age, at every time. We are, if we are disciples of Christ, to be men and women who live for Jesus in this present age, here and now, live godly lives. We are the salt and the light of the world, the church is. 
But while we work out our faithfulness here, we always have a heart, as it were, that's looking over the horizon. An eye, as it were, that's always looking up. Always expecting our Lord could return for us at any time. So I want to break down the passage we've read this morning into four admonitions, four commands. Jesus is commanding his disciples. He's instructing us as to how we are to think about these things. Firstly, in verses 32 through 35, be certain, be certain, be absolutely certain. Jesus gives a parable in verse 32 about the fig tree. Fig trees are very common in, in Jerusalem and Judea. Um, it was a staple crop. You perhaps would have one in your yard. As a boy growing up in Derry, New Hampshire, uh, we lived in an old farmhouse, and one of the things I loved about that property as a boy was there was nine apple trees on the property, old apple trees, and uh, they were great. And uh, You've heard many times how uh, how my brother and I would, uh, just the two of us, got bored, and so we figured we'd play war, and one of us would go on one side of the stream and the other with a shield, which was a uh, the top of a metal trash can, and the other one of us would have a pile of those hard little apples that you couldn't eat, and we would just pelt them at each other, right? That's what boys do. I don't know. They just, they live to hurt each other. I don't know what it is, but uh, we would just have lots of fun, and I I, I, we climbed in those apple trees. We built a fort in one of those apple trees. And I only use that illustration to say that fig trees in, in the area of Israel, what Jesus is talking about, little boys had, instead of apple trees, they had their fig trees. And uh, they provided shade from the blazing hot sun, and they did provide fruit for the people. And so fig trees are very common. We remember that with earlier in the week, in this very same week that Jesus is talking to his disciples, Jesus had gone up to a fig tree expecting, you know, that it would have fruit. And then he cursed the fig tree and it withered so that as the next day they came by, the, the disciples were amazed as if they should be amazed. But fig trees were very common and they were a source of food. So Jesus uses a very common uh, illustration of a fig tree when its branch verse 32 becomes tender and puts forth its leaves you know that summer's near I mean you don't have a half a degree in horticulture to know that when a fig tree after winter starts to bud and put forth its leaves summer's coming and Jesus uses this illustration to say that so that when you see these things that I'm talking about come to pass, you know that the end is near. That's what the disciples had asked, verse 3. What is the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus in verse 32 says, you can be absolutely certain when you see these things happening that I have told you and all of them happening, you can be as certain of my coming is right at hand as much as you are certain when you see a fig tree beginning to bud, you know that summer is just right around the corner. I mean, we see this here in a sense. I mean, we know there are some trees that already have buds on them ready for the spring, but you go out there in the middle of January around here and you, if you walk out in the woods, how does anything live here? I mean, it's freezing cold. 
And uh, I'm, I'm from here, and yet I still think that. How does everything's dead? There's no life, it seems. I mean, everything, how could anything survive this, these kinds of temperatures? And yet we know. Come July with spring, just kidding, uh, uh, <laughs> It'll come sometime, but we know that these trees that were frozen in the middle of the wintertime, those buds will start, the, the maple trees, you'll start to see those little red fuzzy things all over the ground making a mess, right? And then you, it's amazing the leaves will start to unfold, and this forest that you could see through, clear, plain, suddenly is choked with leaves. It's just, it's just a given. It's a guarantee. You can be certain And Jesus says, in a similar way, you can be certain, verse 33, when you see all these things, recognize he, it could also be translated, it, is right at the door. Uh, He, it could be the return of the Lord, or the kingdom, the end, it is near. This, This coming in, the realization of the kingdom of Christ on earth. It's right at the door. Now, verse 33 is very important to underscore when you see all these things, because there are some teachers uh, in Christianity who say, well, uh, these things that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, they're not really in the future in some tribulation. Uh, They teach that these things all happened around 70 AD when the Romans came and destroyed the temple. And that did happen in fulfillment of what Jesus said. He did say to his disciples back at the end of chapter 23 that, um, I'm sorry, chapter 24, verse 2, not one stone would be left upon another that took place in 70 AD. But by no means can you maintain the integrity of language and meaning and say that somehow all these things that we have studied thus far in Matthew 24 somehow took place around 70 AD. Language ceases to mean anything. I mean, it was bad. If you read the accounts through uh, Josephus of the destruction of Jerusalem, it was a bloodbath. The Romans um, just absolutely decimated the city, slaughtered the populace. It was bad. But that, compared to even the Holocaust of last century, is small by comparison. There is no way that 70 AD is of the kind of tribulation that Jesus describes as verse 21 has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now or ever will. It doesn't meet the the standard It doesn't meet the standard. Jesus uh, talks in verse 15 about the abomination of desolation. We looked at that. That that did not take place in 70 AD, the fulfillment of that. Again, we've seen that there are foreshadowings in history of what will come. But Jesus says, when you see all these things, verse 33, that is the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from the sky, Jesus insists all of these signs in their fullness will take place together. And when and only when you see all these things, recognize that the end is near, this end that the disciples have asked about. 
Now, what confuses us then is verse 34. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Well, what do we do with this? Because we know that the disciples, the apostles, lived and died, and not all these things took place in their generation. Now, we can understand that what Jesus has been talking about in chapter 24, in his mind, is a very clear truth. That God had been very clear to Daniel that 77-year periods of time had been decreed for Daniel and his people and the holy city. You can look at Daniel 9 a little bit later today if you want. God has a plan. Jesus takes that at face value. And he's talking about this 70th seven-year period, this generation that will take place. And so this generation he's referring to is that generation that will live during that tribulation period of time. In other words, those who go through the tribulation and survive, we know in Revelation there will be many martyrs, but those who are in that time, they don't have to wonder You know, how many more hundreds of years is it going to be until these things happen? No, if you are living during the tribulation period, you can know because you've seen all these things take place that the fulfillment and the actual coming of Christ and his feet setting down on this earth on the Mount of Olives and the coming and the realization of the kingdom of Christ on earth, you can know it is right at the door, not far off. And that is such an encouragement, again, to think of our Lord providing for his people in anticipation of what they will go through. The same, again, can be said of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. Isaiah in particular, Isaiah chapter 40 and following, so much of Handel's Messiah that this time of year you'll be hearing you know, various parts of Handel's Messiah, and it's, it's beautiful, much of it taken from Isaiah, and um, comfort ye my people. Well, God, in, through Isaiah, is giving words of comfort through Isaiah to his people who aren't even alive yet, because it's clear in Isaiah that he's speaking to his people after the Babylonians have come and destroyed Jerusalem. But that is not in Isaiah's day. That will be in like his children or grandchildren's day, so to speak, that generation. So God has this wonderful pattern in the scriptures of speaking to his people at the present moment, but in his present words, speaking particularly to a generation of his people who will yet live in the future and providing for them words of comfort. I don't know about you, but I love that about God. I love that about my Savior. That tells me if in my life as I follow Christ, as, a, as I follow Christ and I trust God, I take his word and I just act on it as, as God gives me strength. I don't know how everything's going to work out. I don't know when I choose to follow Christ all the details. I don't know in the face of suffering how God will provide. But that pattern of God in the scriptures of recording comforting words and instructions for his people that will live in future generations tells me 
that all along my life, I can expect that God, when I get to that moment, think about it, will have provided grace sufficient for that moment. And it's a beautiful pattern we see in the Bible and scriptures. So this generation cannot be the apostles, else Jesus is a liar. And we do dare not say that Jesus is a liar. You, you have a real problem, and you've got to allegorize and spiritualize away all of what Jesus says if you insist that what he meant was the generation of the apostles. Then somehow that was the worst time that's ever come ever since the world was and ever since the world be, was. It's nonsensical. This generation will not pass away until these things play, take place. And so as we've said, Jesus' intent in this section is certainty. He wants his people, especially those living toward the end of the tribulation, to be certain that they can count on his words. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Absolutely be certain. You can be certain of these things. And uh, think of that. We, we need to have a, certainly a measure of humility when we study the Bible and what it says about the future. We need to recognize that we are, we are humbled at times by our ignorance, right? So, so we want to teach and we want to own our convictions about prophecy, about the future, with a measure of humility, but not to the degree that we are lacking certainty. Because Jesus here is wanting to instill into the spiritual backbone of his people certainty. You know it's clear when you see a fig tree beginning to leave. You know these things, the summer's near. You too, when you see all these things, recognize that the kingdom is near right at the door. Be absolutely certain. Some, understandably, perhaps, struggle now 2,000, almost 2,000 years later. How can, we, how can we still believe that Jesus could return at any moment, that these things are still future, that these things could come to pass? 2 Peter chapter 3, let's just turn there for a moment. This is so important. If you have a Bible, if you want to listen, you can just listen. Second Peter chapter 3. Know this, says Peter. And think about it. Peter was one of the men that was there on the Mount of Olives and heard the words of Jesus. Know this, that first of all, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking following their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, 
that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Very helpful. But we think maybe some here this morning, 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years. Well, a thought occurred to me this week. We've heard Jesus, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, refer to the law and the prophets. He's referred to the teaching of Moses. When Jesus was alive and he was teaching what Moses taught, and by the way, Moses was not only a lawgiver, Moses was a prophet, and through Moses there are certain prophecies about the kingdom of God in Christ. When Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, Moses hadn't been alive for about 2,000 years. So, if it's good enough for Jesus that what Moses said stands about prophetic things 2,000 years later, and Jesus didn't flinch at believing those things would still be fulfilled, a mere 2,000 years for us should not make us think, oh, well, are these things really going to come pass? Come to pass. Make sense? Think about it. Jesus lived in the same kind of conditions we do, in a way. 2,000 years since Moses had been alive. We lived 2,000 years after the words of our Lord. We should not join those who are the mockers, but we should remember that one day with the Lord is like a thousand years. So we can be certain, be certain, be certain that these things will come to pass, be certain of the Lord's coming. Secondly, this morning, and we'll move a little more quickly, verse 36 through 41, don't speculate or scorn. Do not speculate or scorn. We should be certain. Jesus wants us in Matthew 24 to be certain about what he's teaching and about his coming. But then in verse 36, he gives a caution of that day and hour. No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. Uh, I do not want to uh, get off the main point, but the fact that the Son does not know but the Father alone is a reality of the incarnation. And it's a mystery, again, the incarnation, but the Son, the divine Son pertaining to his deity, shares with the Father all things. The Son is with the Father, omniscient, pertaining to his divinity, pertaining to his true humanity, He is not omnipresent, he is not all-powerful, and he is not omniscient. When Jesus is teaching his disciples these things, where is he? This is not a trick question. He's on the Mount of Olives. That's what the text says. I mean, his humanity wasn't spread out all over infinity. Not possible. He became a man, and men take up a certain amount of space. Some of us... A little more, a little less, but Jesus took up a certain amount of space. He is a true man. 
One person, two natures, divine and human. So pertaining to his humanity, he does not know the exact return of his timing of his return. But no one knows except the Father. Here in New Hampshire, we have a a particular uh, history of of being a place that uh, originates a lot of bad teaching, false teaching. Mary Baker Eddy started the Christian Science Church. You can go to Bow and see. I've never I've gone by it, never driven up to see it. I suppose I should sometime. But it's amazing the number of cults and or aberrant forms of Christianity that have started here in New Hampshire or nearby. Um, one of them uh, was uh, uh, started by a, a fellow in the 1800s named Joseph Miller. They were known as the Millerites, and he, he was a man who, in his study of prophecy, had determined that Jesus would return in some time in 1843, 1844. Um, and uh, I, I say this, I, I, I love the town of Washington, where our sister Ellen lives, and it's a, it's a adorable town and you should visit some some of you have been there but you'll notice as you drive out of uh, the little village of Washington that it is the birthplace of the Seventh-day Adventists which which are founded by Joseph Miller and Ellen G. White and and uh, they held that uh, Joseph Miller the Millerites held that Jesus would return sometime in 1843-44 he narrowed it down he he, in the study of prophecy he he dialed in a little bit and he he really dialed it into October 22nd 1844 and his followers gathered together and essentially went up on this mountain I mean this was this was going to be it Jesus was coming Joseph Miller had determined it's it's got to be and people by the by the throngs gathered, Eight, October 22nd, 1844. You won't be surprised that it's now known as the Great Disappointment. Um, that is it's the name of that day, the Great Disappointment. And uh, he is not the first, nor is he the last, one to study biblical prophecy and to violate Jesus' clear command here and somehow think that he can determine exactly when Jesus is going to come. We are forbidden in verse 36. We are forbidden by our Lord to speculate. We are not to speculate. Even if you happen to live through the tribulation, even if you know that he's going to come immediately after the tribulation, you should not even speculate about the particular hour and day because no one knows except the Father. So don't listen to the speculators. I hope if you've listened to me, you've noticed that I have avoided speculation. I have not commented on any current events, by and large. I mean, it is, it, there are things we can note. I mean, we can observe this world as becoming, yes, more perverse, more powerful. The ability of a one-world government, that's not like crazy anymore. That's, that makes sense. I remember when I was a boy and I would hear prophecy conferences and and people wondered, you know, the sign of the beast, and how could you suddenly be locked out of commerce? And now we think uh, <laughs> pretty easy, digital currency. I mean, so, but you haven't heard me speculating. I am not speculating. I don't know if the Lord's going to come today. I don't know if the tribulation is going to unfold beginning this year, or a hundred, or a thousand years from now. I don't know. We don't know. No one knows but the Father. Do not speculate, but neither scorn. Do not speculate or scorn. Jesus then 
says that his coming after the days of the tribulation will be just like the days of Noah, verse 37. They were scorners. They were mockers. Noah preached to them for over a hundred years the message of God to repent. He was there building the ark all those years right in front of them. And no one believed the gospel given through Noah to people to repent and to trust and to get in the ark except his family. And only they were saved. And they just figured, and Peter referenced this in the passage we just read as well, they just figured Noah is a quack. He is, he is off his rocker. He has lost his marbles. He is wasting his life. He is a religious nut. We, are just, we just know year after year, things just kind of continue on the same way, the way they do. And suddenly, it started to rain, and it was too late. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. The world was corrupt, just embroiled and caught up with sin. And they were lost. The entire population of the earth, except Noah and his family. Suddenly, things are going along. And then suddenly, the Son of Man will come. The Son of Man will come. And it'll be frightening. Verses 40 and 41. Jesus has already taught that his angels will gather his elect. We sang it this morning. But verses 40 and 41 tell us that his angels will also be involved in gathering those who will be judged. Verses 40 and 41, those who are being taken and left is a dividing of the believers and the unbelievers, the just and the unjust, the righteous and the wicked. And you'll just be going about your business and suddenly, with no power to resist, you will be ushered either to your eternal judgment or to your eternal joy. Suddenly. So Jesus is teaching us, be certain these things are going to happen. Don't speculate or scorn or mock. You know, I understand sometimes we, we laugh about some end times things. We'll, we'll chuckle and make a joke. Be careful. We need to be careful because there will not be anything funny about the unfolding of these events. And the return of our Lord will be majestic joyous and, and I'm sure there will be eventually some some holy laughter in the midst of tears of joy but these are awesome things not to be counted lightly fourth thirdly rather Jesus calls us in verses 42 through 44 to be on the alert that's what he says and that's what I'm taking my point from therefore be on the alert You do not know which day your Lord is coming. Be on the alert. Be ready. You don't know when your Lord's coming. If you try to plan it, if you try to put that in your calendar, you're going to be wrong. 
you cannot know. Just like someone who's in a crime-ridden area is quite certain that they're going to be robbed at some point, they don't know, though. They don't know who the thief is. They can't, you know, know, the thief is not going to text you, say, you know, I'm wondering, could I come in and rob your house on Thursday night, and uh, what about time would work for you? I want to put it in my calendar. (laughs) You know, it's not going to happen. The owner's likely going to be in bed, and... uh, you know, maybe sleeping, but, but if he's smart, he's prepared. He's, he's got locks. He's got a plan. He's, he's ready. If he had known when the thief would come, he would have been on the alert, Jesus says, verse 43. So we are called, all of us, no matter what age and time we are living in, to be alert for the coming of our Lord. We are to be ready. Now, with this call to be ready, we must be careful to remember the next and final point this morning, the call to be faithful, serving our master. Being ready for the coming of our Lord does not mean that we as a church somehow go up on a hill somewhere and wait for our Lord to come. It doesn't mean that we neglect other duties that God has called us to because we say, well, I'm looking for the waiting return of Jesus. It's an attitude of the heart and a preparedness. (laughs) Some of us uh, husbands, uh, maybe, uh, aren't as careful of how neat we are when our our wives are away for the day or for off doing chores. We might, some of us, I don't know, uh, leave things out. not put dishes away, so forth and so on. And, and um, we might just, some of us, I, I don't know, maybe you have this experience, but we might, we might think to ourselves, oh, I heard she's not coming back until night after dinner, so it's fine. My clothes are all over the place. It's a mess, but it's okay. I got plenty of time. And then maybe if you heard the car pulling in the driveway, you think to yourself, <gasps> and you start scurrying, I, I've, heard, I've heard other men have this issue. Uh, and you start scurrying around and, and picking up your dirty socks and, and your clothes and you start putting them in the hamper and you suddenly run to the kitchen and, you, and you, you, you start thinking, oh boy, I left this an absolute mess. What it means is probably a better practice for those husbands that I've heard about uh, to work on is just to continue the practice of, you know what, I, I probably should just pick up after myself And uh, so I'm pretty much ready for her or anyone else uh, to come at any time. It's just being ready. Um, I'm working on that. I want to work on that. And I encourage you to, not only if you're a husband, but to be working on readiness for Christ. In other words, I have my life in order as much as I'm able to. My priorities, I'm about my Lord's business, but I'm always doing what I do with a mindset of When my Lord comes, I want to be found by him being faithful. And so Jesus uses the illustration in verses 45 through 51 of a a faithful slave and of a wicked slave. And he's speaking here, when he speaks of the wicked slave, that that is not a believer. That is clearly an unbeliever. And it is a reminder to us that 
whether you claim to be a Christian or not, listen carefully, you ultimately will be Christ. Not in a loving manner, but he made your life. He gave you your breath. He is the creator of this world. You are stewarding what he gave you, and he will at some point call in you call you in to give an account. There is not one square inch of this universe that does not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that includes ultimately hell. Hell is not the devil's place. Hell is the devil's bane. It is where he will be condemned and held, but hell itself is owned by God. There is nowhere and no one that is outside the ownership and the lordship of God and of Jesus Christ. So Jesus uses an illustration. The faithful slave, his master goes off and um, he is put in charge of his household. And the slave who is faithful, even though his master is far off and he doesn't know the exact time when his master comes, because the slave loves his master, and this is a slave in the New Testament world. Um, the Bible doesn't, you know, promote slavery, but it does call we who are Christians slaves of God. It uses this very common relationship, and slavery was not always onerous. There were times when slaves were like family members and loved their owners. And so a faithful slave here is a slave that loves her master, it loves his master, and wants to be faithful, found faithful when the master comes. And if that slave, verse 47, is faithful while the master is away, when the master isn't watching, the master, when he comes back, will see that and put that slave in charge of his possessions. There is a reality for Christians that part of our joy in the eternal kingdom will be reward in terms of our Lord granting to us in his kingdom varying degrees of responsibility and honor based upon our stewardship here and now. Now, be careful with that. There's not going to be any, there's not going to be such a thing as a Christian who's in the eternal kingdom saying, oh man, uh, forever sad. I wish I'd done better, right? <laughs> there is not going to be any sadness. There's not going to be any regret in the eternal kingdom. God will wipe away every tear. But it is nonetheless a reality that those who serve Christ faithfully now will be rewarded according to their faithfulness. And Jesus teaches that here. But, verse 48, if the evil slave says in his heart, my master's not coming for a long time, he begins to beat his fellow slaves and act in a wicked manner, the master, verse 50, will return on a time when he does not know. And notice the severity. He will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In that place... It will become clear in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, is a place of eternal punishment. 
called hell. Be faithful, serving your master. We can be certain that what Jesus is teaching will come to pass. We ought not to speculate about the particular timing. We should not mock or scorn, but be on the alert and be ready and be always faithful. Living a quiet life of godliness, wherever Jesus may find us, place us, trusting that he will not miss our faithfulness and that he will reward us when he comes. We want to be a church marked by anxiously looking for the return of our Lord. We want and intend and by God's grace will be a church that every Lord's Day in some form together sings about, prays about, longs for the coming of our Lord because that's what we're after. We want to honor him here and now. We want to serve him here and now. It's okay for us to have plans here and now, but our entire leaning is towards the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. May he come quickly. Let's pray. So, Lord, we do pray, come quickly, and we'll sing in a moment, come quickly. I pray if there's any here this morning who are not among those who have trusted in you, I pray that today would be a day of getting ready for your return. In your name we pray, amen.